This is History West Midlands. The latest series of the highly acclaimed BBC One drama, Peaky Blinders, introduces us to a new villain, Oswald Mosley, one of Britain's most enigmatic and controversial figures of the 20th century, who played a prominent role in the political life of Birmingham and the West Midlands between the First and Second World Wars. Mosley was a unique politician. His career began conventionally enough as a Conservative MP, but then, disillusioned by the party's unwillingness to aggressively intervene to improve the economy, Mosley left to join the Labour Party, where, after becoming an MP for the second time, he was appointed to the Labour Cabinet. But again, Mosley failed to ignite his colleagues' enthusiasm for his radical ideas, and after this rejection, he gave up entirely on the established party system and founded the British Union of Fascists, popularly known as the Black Shirts. To find out more about this flawed but fascinating political figure, History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs talked to Birmingham political historian Andrew Reeks. Andrew, can I begin by asking you to tell us about the world into which Oswald Mosley was born? Yes, he was born into a privileged world, a feudal world. He was a member of the landed gentry and there was a strong sense in his family of feudal patrician responsibility for the workers. His father was a bit of a rogue, but he was raised by his mother and his grandfather in a country house in Rolleston in Derbyshire. And his world of privilege was reinforced by his being sent to one of the country's top public schools, Winchester College, where he was an outstanding fencer and sportsman. But he went to Sandhurst from Winchester, had not been a success as a scholar, which is a surprise because he was a bright man. And the war came while he was at Sandhurst training. And so he joins the Lancers, first of all, and then the Royal Flying Corps as an observer. And there he has a different perspective for many people of the war, watching the masses of German troops as they move up to the Western Front from the air. He was deeply impressed by the martial organisation of the German army particularly, but also of the British army. But what he really learnt was the sacrifice and loyalty of the ordinary man. This reinforced his feudal sense of obligation. And he comes out of the war with a feeling that whatever happens, there must be a land fit for heroes created for the people who fought alongside him. And he certainly acts on that belief very quickly because he stands as a Conservative candidate in the general election that took place only weeks after the war ended in 1918. He does, but he stands as a sort of left-wing Conservative, one who feels that deep obligation and wants to do something about full employment and better housing. The family connections led him to the Conservative Party, and whilst he is competing for the candidature with the Constituency Association, he discovers in himself qualities of oratory and the ability to put an argument over which woo the association and which he was surprised to discover. So at 22, he becomes the baby of the House of Commons. 
how did the House of Commons react to this new young MP? At first, very enthusiastically, mostly immediately impressed for the quality of his oratory. As the Westminster Gazette says, Mosley is the most polished literary speaker in the Commons. Words flow from him in graceful epigrammatic phrases that have a sting in them for the government and the Conservatives. To listen to him is an education in the English language, also in the art of delicate but deadly repartee. But then, because he couldn't stop himself being critical of what he saw, increasingly he made himself unpopular. Most particularly, he makes himself unpopular with his own party. He's very critical of the violence of the black and tans in Ireland. He's very critical of intervention in Russia, that was the particular policy of Winston Churchill to try and unseat the Bolsheviks. And he's very unhappy about the axing of early housing programmes, the Geddes Acts, which the Conservatives have supported. So he rapidly becomes disillusioned with his own party and he tells people so as well, which doesn't make him popular. And during this time as a Conservative MP for Harrow, he also meets his first wife. Yes, Cynthia, daughter of renowned snob, Conservative former Viceroy of India, Lord Curzon. And surprisingly for a girl brought up in that background, she has radical and advanced views on housing. In fact, she was a liberal. And she would match him or follow him across the party spectrum, becoming in the end, of course, a Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent. So it was, in many senses, a political marriage, a meeting of minds, as well as being a love match. And when Mosley became disenchanted with the Conservative Party, what action does he take? He starts to talk to Liberals, and it's thought that he would join the Liberal Party. He's already having discussions with people like John Maynard Keynes. And so, at first, his departure from the Conservative Party is one which is carried out quietly, sotto voce, no moving across the House to join Liberals. But by 1924, he is convinced that he'll have to join the Labour Party. And where does he become a Labour candidate? He decides, after careful thought, to beard Conservative Chamberlainism in its lair in Ladywood in Birmingham, the very heartland of the Chamberlain machine. Partly because it would be a real dramatic gesture if he was able to wrest Birmingham from a Chamberlain. And he really bitterly disliked the work that Neville Chamberlain had done on the Rent Act, which he felt had really harmed working-class families. And how successful was he in taking on Neville Chamberlain in Birmingham? He lost in the end by 77 votes, but undoubtedly Neville Chamberlain had the shock of his life. Mosley describes in his own autobiography how in the courtyards of Birmingham Blue window cards came down to be replaced by red and the excitement all over Ladywood in Birmingham was palpable as we approach election day. His public meetings were marked by huge enthusiasm, sometimes it must be said by a little bit of violence as Conservative supporters of Chamberlain made life 
rough for him because he'd been a traitor to their party. But there is no doubt at all that Oswald Mosley revivified the Labour Party in Birmingham so that by 1929 the Labour Party was winning six seats in Birmingham, which was an extraordinary feat. Whilst Mosley was out of Parliament, he produced the Birmingham Memorandum. What was that? Unemployment was over two million and concentrated in particular areas of the country, the areas of heavy industry where competition from abroad was acute. The Birmingham proposals were what he privately called his unauthorised programme. The aim was to end unemployment by boosting domestic demand for goods. The policy involved controlling banks and it involved directing money to depressed areas of the country where individual working people would be provided with money in order to purchase goods from industry which at the moment was suffering badly for lack of demand. This is called Keynesian deficit financing. And in 1926, Mosley takes these proposals into a by-election, which he fought on behalf of the Labour Party in Smethwick. Yes. In the time from 1924, after the Ladywood election, he demonstrated his Labour credentials and he'd won trade union support by taking a leading part in the local general strike committee in 1926. A vacancy came up in Smethwick at the end of the year, which gave him a chance, and there he withstood a ferocious press assault, where he was portrayed as arrogant, wealthy, and born, as his father unhelpfully suggested, with a golden spoon in his mouth. He riled his opponents by an attack on Tory wage cuts and won a great victory in the Chamberlainite heartland in Birmingham. Mosley faced vitriolic abuse in the press and as the working-class town crier newspaper commented, If, on the eve of the poll, Mosley had committed bigamy or murdered his wife, nobody would have believed the story. Such was the barrage of mud from the Tory press. And when he took his seat in the House of Commons, what was his trajectory then within the Labour Party? He was the coming man. And a number of people thought that if the cards fell in the right way, he would be a Labour leader. He was clearly articulate. He was a passionate advocate of different unemployment policies as he assaulted the government front bench, most particularly people like Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. And by the 1929 election, he'd established himself as a Labour star. So that when, in 1929, he gets back into the House, he has to be given a ministerial post. He is made Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, a non-cabinet post. As one reporter commentated at the Llandudno Labour Conference in 1930, The throng was hypnotised by the man, by his audacity, as bang, 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 he thundered directions. The thing that got hold of the conference was that here was a man with a straight-cut policy. Here was the Moses. Encouraged to think bright ideas by the Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, 
who privately doesn't really want to act on any bright ideas but thinks he must be seen to be doing something. He comes up with the Moseley Memorandum which talks very radically of ways of stimulating a very depressed economy. So he talks about a slimline executive, a sort of war cabinet that he'd observed in 1917-1918 that Lloyd George had done so well. He comes up with the idea again of deficit financing. He comes up with the idea of job creation schemes, road building schemes and so on. All these ideas are buried by the rest of the cabinet. And the idea of intervening in industry and taking over certain industries is far too left-wing for any of these rather conservative Labour politicians. In the end, Mosley is so frustrated, impatient, that he resigns his ministerial position and begins the process of moving out of the Labour Party. Mosley gave his reasons for resignation as follows. I felt quite simply that if I lent myself any longer to this cynical holocrinade, I should be betraying completely the people to whom we had given solemn pledges to deal with the unemployment problem. And he moved out of the Labour Party where? Well, he resigns from Labour and founds a new party in 1931. The idea being to gather around himself disillusioned MPs, even some Conservatives, who want the capital A action. And he sets himself up as the messiah of action, as someone who will do things where the rest of government and indeed the rest of parliament is sclerotic. And how much support did he get from the country as a whole? He gets about 18 MPs in his new party. So he gets some support even in the House of Commons. But as far as the launch and his support in the country is concerned, he is unfortunate because August 1931 is the Great Crash. And the crash sees the resignation of the Labour government under Ramsay MacDonald as the banks refused to fund Britain's government spending any longer. The crashing of the Labour government would have given him a most marvellous opportunity, had he still been in the Labour Party, to have seized the initiative and indeed the leadership. As it is, he watches from the sidelines as a new national government is created, saying the very things that he's been talking about. We need a government of national unity. That, therefore, steals his thunder. At the same time as that, he is very ill indeed and is out of action, really, for three or four months. When he should have been round the country drumming up support, he is recuperating in bed or abroad. So the momentum for a new party is lost almost before you can say a um, general election is coming, which it does in the autumn of 1931. How strong was the new party that mostly established in Birmingham? And did he campaign here in Birmingham at that time? Yes, he did campaign here in 1931, November 31. And the Rag Street Market riot, I suppose you'd call it, was one of the most infamous moments of the whole general election campaign. Here he is, 
a man who has left the Labour Party coming to support the candidature of a new party candidate in Birmingham. The images of Oswald Mosley coming down from the platform at the head of a phalanx of stewards to break up communist hecklers in the audience and being met by chairs and bottles as he's driven back from the body of the auditorium onto the platform, then making his escape on a side entrance, is one of the most potent of the entire election and is the beginning, really, of his association with violence. As a result of it, he concludes that he absolutely must surround himself with stewards who are well-equipped, thoroughly trained in violent techniques to protect him. Because the key to understanding Mosley is to understand that the most potent thing he's got is his voice. His oratory is such, he's the greatest orator of his generation, that it can sway those who come to hear him. Therefore it's important that he preserves the right of free speech. And so one of his defences against the violence which is attached to him is that he absolutely has to ensure he can be heard. And how does he fare in that election? Every one of his candidates fails. He loses his wife's seat. She is ill of peritonitis and will soon die. He has to stand in her seat at Stoke. And he loses it. And it's a pretty disastrous thing. And indeed the new party fades away. But mostly recovers. Yes. Recovery physically gives him a new lease of life. Frustration with the national government's policies gives him a new lease of life. The new Chancellor is Neville Chamberlain, who is as orthodox as ever Snowden was. There's barely any help for depressed industries. So, given that Mosley's profoundly committed to solving this scourge of unemployment it's not surprising that he determines to found a new party, the British Union of Fascists. We think now you say fascism, and obviously our mental pictures are of the Nuremberg rallies and everything that followed. Is that what the attitude to fascism was in Britain and more widely in Europe at the time he started the British Union of Fascists? I think it evolves across the 1930s. In 1932, Hitler has not come to power yet. The model is Mussolini. Mussolini is treated much more indulgently, I think, in this country in 1932-33 because he appeared to have effected something of a benign revolution in Italy. Yes, there were associations of thuggery, but there was much to admire in what had been achieved. Mosley's enthusiasm for Mussolini comes through in an article written in the Daily Mail. The great Italian represents the first emergence of the modern man to power. It is an interesting and instructive phenomenon. Englishmen who have long suffered from statesmanship in skirts can pay him no less and need pay him no more tribute than to say, here at least is a man. So when he launched the British Union of Fascists, what manifesto did he put forward? It's 
the same manifesto in a sense that he's put forward to the Labour Party. It's about solving unemployment, but it's also about the strong executive. He was a great man for action, the strong leader. It's also about the corporate state. He always felt that Parliament was a body stuffed full of conservative with a small c politicians who had no radical thinking, no imagination at all, and was thoroughly hidebound. He wanted to scrap that. Instead, he saw the governance of the country through the corporate state of employers and unions deciding on economic policy and essentially running the future of the country. Mosley explained fascism as follows. The fascist principle is private freedom and public service. I should argue very strongly indeed that the only way to have private freedom was by a public organisation which brought some order out of the economic chaos which exists in the world today, and that such public organisation can only be secured by the methods of authority and of discipline which are inherent in fascism. And what was the reaction from the electorate to his arguments? Well, he never won a by-election, so in that sense one could say it never really came full-heartedly behind him. At any one stage, I suppose 1934, there would be fifty to 60,000 members maximum. By the beginning of the Second World War, that had reduced 20,000 members, maybe at a pinch 30,000. So we're not talking big numbers. But the important thing is that there were certain pockets. Birmingham was not one of them. Birmingham's membership was pretty small. Today, we mention Oswald Mosley, particularly with the recent focus on his life in the BBC drama series Peaky Blinders, and we immediately think of black shirts, of Germanic, Nazi-like supporters. How important was this militaristic aspect of the British Union of Fascists in reality? Well, it was important, but I would say that it antedates the Nazis. It really is a growth out of his own feeling that what the country needed was a new sort of discipline, a new sort of purpose. And so he sets up barracks in headquarters in Chelsea. He trains his supporters. He trains his stewards. He puts them in a uniform and he indulges in marches to attract support in the working-class areas. Unfortunately, I suppose, in time, that militarism led or rather is associated with violence as well at certain events, most particularly Olympia in 1934, when his stewards set about critics in the most violent way, kicking them to the ground and so on. And there were a number of marches in the East End of London, which also were in part, I guess, a reflection of the growing anti-Semitism within the party. I think... He adopted anti-Semitic policies tactically. He could see that in the East End of London there was a bitter resentment against Jewish rack-renting landlords or against small Jewish businessmen undercutting local firms. 
and that that resentment was fertile ground for him to recruit. And he developed a curious idea about an international Jewish conspiracy. And in the second half of the 1930s, prior to the declaration of the Second World War, there was an endorsement of Mosley and the British Union of fascists by the Nazi regime in Germany. And there were also relatively close personal links, particularly, I guess, through Mosley's second wife. Yes, Diana Mitford knew a number of the German leadership in the Nazi regime. And I was surprised to learn that Mosley's wedding to Diana actually took place in Dr Goebbels' home in Berlin. The Minister of Propaganda was attended by Hitler as a witness. That suggests that there must have been close relationships. No, I don't think there were, particularly with the German high command. Mosley only met Hitler twice, but I think what is much more interesting is the suggestion that has been made that Mussolini and the Italian fascist party supported Mosley and supported them financially in 1935 and 36 in an attempt to try and buy some support in Britain for the invasion of Abyssinia. And did that succeed? It didn't succeed, but it's something that Mosley then did his darndest to cover up. And all of these relationships came to the attention of MI5, and that was to have consequences when war was declared in 1939. Well, yes, the MI5's view on Diana Mosley is summed up in a report. Diana Mosley, wife of Sir Oswald Mosley, is reported on the best authority, that of her family and intimate circle, to be a public danger at the present time. She is said to be far cleverer and more dangerous than her husband, and will stick at nothing to achieve her ambitions. She is wildly ambitious. By May 1940, with France falling, the situation was very different. Then, MI5 and the authorities moved against Mosley. He now seemed to be a danger, and the argument always was that he was therefore a traitor, which was a nonsense. They were arresting him, actually, in case he would collaborate in a future successful invasion by Hitler. But he was at no stage undermining the British war effort. So he was incarcerated for fear of what he might do and landed up in prison in Holloway with his wife, who had also been arrested on the same suspicion of being a traitor. He wasn't released till 1943 because he was ill and Churchill really didn't want the idea of Mosley dying on his watch. Despite his experiences prior to and during the Second World War, I guess he's not the sort of person who's going to fade away from the political scene when peace is restored. What happened? Well, in some senses, it was done for him. His incarceration in the war and all that had been written about him in the press drove him right to the margins. He was no longer a serious player as he had been in the 1930s. He has some very interesting ideas. His new body, the European Union, which was a political campaign to 
press for the union of European countries, the nationalism of Europe, he called it, was imaginative and actually far-seeing. But it didn't ever attract many to his cause. By the 1960s, he was becoming interested in something else and the ideas as to what or how to respond to immigration interested him very much and thus placed him somewhere close to Enoch Powell in his response to the ideas of repatriating West Indian immigrants who'd come over here. So the political career that, like some meteor, had risen so dramatically in the 1930s had fallen away and burnt out by 1980 and his death in France. When we look at his career and at his ideas, his philosophies, from the perspective of today, how should we judge Mosley? I think the point about Mosley is that he was never just a superficial figure. There's a depth to him, a power of imagination and analysis, which is truly impressive in the 1930s. He had a vision of how to solve unemployment that few other politicians had. The sadness was that in trying to execute those ideas, he moved ever further towards the idea of fascism and to violence to carry those ideas through. Andrew, thank you so much for giving us these insights into a man who was obviously a fascinating figure in British political history between the two wars. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You can find out more about Oswald Mosley and the Black Shirts in an article entitled Black Shirts and Brummies, Interwar Fascism in the West Midlands by Tom Gidlow on our website, www.historywm.com, where you will also discover films and podcasts on real Peaky Blinders with noted historian, author and broadcaster Carl Chin. <laughs>